A Podcast One production. Gusha Goldstein was nine when her life changed forever. The Germans invaded Poland. It was World War II and the beginning of one of the most evil times in our world's history, the Holocaust. In August 1944, Gusha was moved to Auschwitz. Gusha recalls as the skinny little girl with dark eyes, she looked nine rather than her real age of 14. Girls this young were forbidden to still be alive. Flanked on either side by her older cousins Inka and Carmela, she had survived another selection for the gas chambers. Her cousin maintains that when the SS man passes in front of Gutta, an angel's hand covers his eyes. In this heartfelt conversation, Gutta and I talk about the fleeting human connections that fostered determination, making survival a possibility, the death of her innocence and why even in the darkest of hours, she cannot and will not hate. I never hated them then. I didn't like them. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with them or anything. But no, I can't forgive them. I can't forget what they did. But I do not hate people. I don't hate them. I'm Sarah Grimberg. And this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Gutta Goldstein is the author of There Will Be Tomorrow and Towards the Future, a memoir. At 89 years of age, I am left in awe at her resilient, life-affirming spirit. Gutta came to Melbourne, Australia after the Holocaust. That is where she met my grandma Susie and my grandpa David. It is truly an honour to share her miraculous story with you. In this episode, you will understand the true meaning of courage, survival and grace. Tell us about life in Poland before the war. Well, my father had a, a business. What did he, he had, do? He, he had a, a shop with the textiles, had something to do with textiles. And he married Esther, my stepmother, who is a kindergarten teacher. And she had her own kindergarten. Those days it was something very new. So her and her sister had a kindergarten in where, where we lived. And... Uh, when I had a little sister, she was very cute and gorgeous. And she was four years. She was not quite five when yes. the war started and I was nine. And I went to school and I loved it. I, I had a wonderful teacher and it was a wonderful time. So take us back. What, what were you doing when you found out that the war had commenced? It was a Friday morning, and I, I remember that very well. And I was eating. We had breakfast. And my uh, stepmother had a brother, and not far, sort of the next corner. So she yes. went, I think, to visit them. She came back, and she said, very agitated to my father, you wouldn't believe that. They just declared war. 
And my father mm. said that. My father said, oh, the war wouldn't last much longer. They didn't take it that day because the propaganda was that the Germans have got paper planes. And so they didn't believe that it's going to last very long. And uh, and then things started to happen. My, my father and his brothers came back from Warsaw and they were saying that the Germans weren't very nice and a lot of people were killed on the way because a lot of people were, were running away from whatever, from the bombing. Mm. And then straight away there, there, were, there was no, there was shortage of bread for a start. And people had to stand in queues for hours and the Germans suddenly, when they, and then the, that's, that's only was for the first week. And then the Germans occupied, eight days later, the Germans occupied Lodge. And straight away, immediately, the, the laws against the, against the Jews were immediately, they tried to implement them. So when you stood in the, in, in the line for bread, he'd go all Jews out from the line and then there was you went you went allowed to walk on the in the main street which they immediately named after after Hitler and uh, you weren't allowed to go to the park anymore because they had you a thing on it I loved the park we loved it and they sent sort of lovely ice cream in the park and everything in the summer the holidays mm. And yes, there was music in the park before the war. It was lovely. But no, we, we couldn't because it was Jew. There was a placard, Jews and dogs are forbidden to enter. You weren't allowed to sit on benches, on public benches. And you had to give, if you had a radio, you have to give it in. You had, there was straight away a lot of things going on. And Were you scared then? I wasn't scared. I was just confused. I, I, I didn't know what, I knew something terrible was happening, but I could, I, I wasn't aware. So we were still in our place and we were still in our home and we still had all our family. So And you were seven. And I was nine. Nine. I was nine. And so I still, uh, you know, we were still at home. So I was always a bit of an optimist, I think. But yes. I just sort of thought, oh, well, that's going to pass. The grown-ups are going to be, you know, sort of normal again because they were the ones that... And, and suddenly they were... My father got uh, um, some some potatoes from somewhere and they put all the potatoes under the, under the beds and, and, and people preparing this and they're preparing that and preparing food. And it, it was very... It was bedlam at home in a mm. way. For you, you love school and it was like one of the most... It, it was, was the best time for you. You, it was. you said to me, and you just love learning. Yes. And you write a beautiful passage in your book, There Will Be Tomorrow. You write, We arrived at school on the first day of term to find our teacher extremely sad with tears in her eyes. It was a school rule to stand when a teacher entered a classroom, but this time she bid us sit down and solemnly try to convey to her class of nine-year-olds the meaning and dangers of war and occupation and what might await us. She told us that she and her husband of a few weeks were going away, that we must be brave and good children because very bad times were ahead. Tears were falling from her eyes and her voice was gentle. We sat wide-eyed and listened, stock still. We felt the seriousness of what she was trying to convey. 
I cannot remember every word she said, but I can still feel the atmosphere of sadness and apprehension that prevailed that day in our classroom. At her most pessimistic, she could not have imagined what fate awaited us, her grade three pupils. We all said goodbye to her with her departure and the closure shortly afterwards of our school and the exclusion of Jewish children from all learning institutions. The sun set on my school days. Afterwards, schooling for Jewish children was forbidden. That's such yes. a sad day that for you. It was very, very sad. It was terribly, terribly sad. We never saw her again. And I don't think she survived. It was terribly, terribly sad. It, it, it just, but it, I didn't think at the time we sort of thought it's going to end. It's yes. not going to last. It, because things, things were still kind of, I wouldn't say normal, but you were at home, you were in your country, you were, you had your parents mm. and they looked after you and you didn't have to worry about things, you know. Yeah. I mean, even the food that they worried about it yes. and you didn't get hungry. It was it, that innocence of being a child. A child, exactly. You didn't, we still played, you know. Yes. I had. A, a what lot, did you play? We had games. Mm. Children played, you know, yes. and we read and we told and we sang and we... We were happy still. It, it, it was just that the, the atmosphere with the grown-ups was very uh, sad and, and you, you couldn't be silly with them because they didn't have to, you know, yes. they had all the things on their mind, I would say. And Jews were no longer allowed to live in the main city. They were moved to, to a ghetto. Yes, they had to move. And eventually an aunt, uh, my father's sister, found, a little place, and she offered to share it. So we we shared it, and there were six people, the four of us, my aunt was a widow and her daughter. It was a, a room, a small room, and with an annex. There was no, there were no facilities at all. There was no bathroom, there was no running water, there was no electricity, there was just nothing. You were in those that camp for a while and two years after being in there, your dad got very got ill. It, yes. What, what was he ill with? I. They said that he had pneumonia uh, and also I think he had tuberculosis by then. And the living conditions were terrible when he was sick. Uh, it was the, again. It was April. It was it was again spring, and because these places were very dilapidated, the snow was melting on the top of the roof, and and dripping. And you write about that in your book. There will be tomorrow. The children were awakened by moans and they listened helplessly to their father's anguish. He called for help. It was difficult and painful for him to breathe. He called for his mother. He needed her, but she was so far away. She was in Palestine. She lived there. I often wonder if she heard her son's desperate calling in his hour of need. In desperation, gasping for breath, he sent the elder of his children for help to his sister who lived on the first floor of the front building across the courtyard. In the dead of night, the child, alone and frightened, she was always frightened of the dark, crossed the deserted courtyard on her sad mission. Shining brightly, high, so high in the dark blue sky, was a full moon, this silent witness illuminating the silent dark courtyard accompanied her. 
Later in the morning, with the help of some neighbours, their father was moved and settled into aunt's bed. The bed stood alongside a wall. When the children were brought in, he indicated for them to come closer. Holding hands, the two children approached the bed and stood there very quietly and very still. He did not speak, but his beautiful dark eyes and the sadness in them burnt a memory into the minds of those children. He looked at them long and deeply, then turned his head to the wall and he was no more. My father, Judah Koppel, passed away at the age of 37 in the Lodge Ghetto in Poland on the eighth day of Passover, the 19th of April, 1941. So you yes. and your sister were... Yes, were basically, Yeah, orphaned. Yes, because... Yes, so he stayed with my aunt uh, and, and she looked after us. She was like an angel, your aunt. She was wonderful. She was very. She was. She, she was. She was a widow, as I said, and she was wonderful. And we stayed with her for a little bit, not terribly, terribly long. Were you scared? Months. Were you scared after your dad died? How old I were you then? Twelve, and I wasn't scared, but I was sad. I, I don't think I was scared, but I was I was wondering, you know, I, I felt displaced. I didn't belong anywhere, you know. It, it was, I didn't know I, maybe I, that I should be scared, but I felt displaced mm. and, you know, I had to be sort of behave myself and, uh, and uh, Yes, I, my aunt was very nice to us, really. But that's that's how it was. And then they went to work, and that that they, they started the factories already then. Yeah, and grown ups went to work. But I still felt a little bit secure because she was looking after. There yes. was there was a grown up person. That you took trust charge. Is, yes. And you went sort of completely dislodged. Yes. And how would your sister and you talk about what was going on? Would or? you believe we didn't? I was we thinking didn't. about it the other day. No, we were sort of... What did you talk didn't. about? We didn't. We played. Aww. We played and I who was an avid reader. Mm. I loved reading. My mother encouraged it. My stepmother encouraged it. And I loved reading. And um, my stepmother, at the time when we were in bed, she used to get us books from people she knew who brought their private children's libraries to the ghetto. And then they they lend it out to people. And she, I, used to, I used to devour those books. And I remember there was a very very sad story that I read and I read it to my sister because she couldn't read yet. She was only five yeah. and school in Poland started at seven. So I I read it to her and I remember I cried my heart out for those children in this book. It, it had something to do about children yeah. that, that were before the war, that were very poor and lived in an attic and there were five of them and there were one older girl that looked after them because they lost their parents and they were mm. orphans and they no, they didn't have anybody. And I sort of, I didn't consciously identify yes. with it, but I was so sorry for those children Isn't and for this, what, what, was going on, what was going on. And 
I, I still remember the title. It was called The Room in the Attic. And I, it was very sad. sad. I, I just identified and I cried. I remember I cried when I read it. Yeah. Did you cry a lot? No, I didn't. I used to cry a lot when I was, uh, when I, before Pre the war. war. Yeah. You know, I remember when yeah. my, you know, when my, um, father and my stepmother when they were going out and we yes. were by ourselves and those days they went any babysitters yes. it was a, and and we were going to bed anyway and I cried and I made a scene I didn't want them to go you know but later no I, I just knew that you shouldn't I didn't want to make a fuss I just went along it's funny isn't it it's like you had to hold your emotions in exactly mm. I was, and I, I was trying I remember that I was with the reading, it helped a lot. And it's like, like running running away from it and go, going into something else. Yeah. And uh, so that's what I did. We read we read a lot. And Rumkowski, that was the, the head of decided that um, he's going to make a school camp for the children to yeah. stay there and he uh, and, and they got a bit of extra food. So it. you went there. So he said that there is a, the, the thing. Maybe we could go there. Also, it's a school camp for school children. Uh, but suddenly, there were there were lots of people became orphaned. So there were lots of orphans, and they did not. So he sent them there, and it became a huge orphanage. This place. And we were, um, and you and were my there with aunt, your sister. Uh, was persuaded because he said that we'll be better off yes. having a bit more food. So you and your sister Munya got very sick with the measles. We yes, we got we got had measles, and we were flo- frolicking around in the in, uh, in the beds. There were seven children that got measles. And so what happened? And Munya to you? was very lively and very you know. And then they decided they had to they had to let the authorities know you know everything was very very that you had uh, the measles official yeah that they that are measles in this. So it came back. Uh, we were already nearly okay uh, that we have to go to the, uh, the yeah. hospital with, with diseases. And so when we got there, they they put us in a room. They 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 got us undressed and they put us. They gave us a bath and they put us put these light um, clothes like nighties. Yes. It was freezing in that room, but absolutely freezing. And we were sitting there for hours and hours and hours. I don't know. They didn't have any any bed. I don't know why. And my little sister was getting, you know, strange. And I saw, because she was very lively and sweet. How old was she? And she was quite, she was not quite seven. And suddenly she was very quiet and she was just sitting there and we were looking at what happened and then suddenly she said she didn't feel very good and she and by the time they got her she had very, very high temperature and they took it away and just and that's when I that's when I got frightened. I went with the other children to yeah. one room, to the dormitory, so in a, a ward, and she was taken separately and I didn't know where they took her and I, that's when I sort of felt 
there are no grown-ups. There is nobody. It's just me and her and I've got to look the after her. The first time were really scared. And she's little. So I was 12 and she was not quite seven. And and I, I, I just, anyhow, eventually, by the time they settled us, I think it was evening. And then the next day, somebody told me that she was in a in a separate room. And I went out of my bed and I went to see her. And when I saw her, oh my God, uh, she was crying. She was, they heard her cry at night and she was crying. And she was in terrible pain because they, 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 there was no anesthetic or anything and they t- took the lumbar fluid from her spine without anesthetic. And she Shocking. was only little and there was nobody to nobody that cared really. And I went and she says, could you go get the nurse? And I went and got the nurse. And that nurse was horrible. Yeah, and I... she said, she said, oh, she's been like that all night and she's been crying all night and I'll go and see her. And, and, and then I went back to tell her that the nurse doesn't want to come in. And this is something I think the look in her eyes I will never forget as long as I live. I really, I still can't. And um, such a resignation. And she says, "All right, go." And uh, I, I went. I should have stayed, of course, but I didn't. I, I don't know. I, I wasn't. I, I just. And then I. It was a Jewish holiday of Shavuot. They were yes. telling us. And I went back to my bed and the children that were with us asked how she was and I, that's what I told them. And then suddenly there was a nurse that came and she was saying, oh, we have to close the windows, put the blinds down. And we didn't know why. And then eventually when they opened it, I still managed to see there was a doctor and a nurse that were going somewhere and there was one boy who seemed to be smarter, he was older than us. And he said, oh, he heard that they're doing, going to do an autopsy. I didn't know what an autopsy was. But what also I will never forget that they were laughing. There were two nurses and a, and a doctor and they were going to do that on my sister. I didn't know that. Anyhow, I went to have a look again how she is and there were there was an empty bed with all the sheets still on the floor and she was gone. And that was that. And that was just absolutely awful. Uh, awful is not a word. I just, uh, I never got over it really. I really think I never got no work. Yeah. And that was that was it. Yeah. Unfortunately there isn't even a grave. Uh so then we were we were staying there for another little bit and then we went back. And I remember that Carmela was talking to me and she was talking and talking. and But nobody sort of, I don't know how how people were different. They 
whether it was respect or whatever, nobody came to talk to you about it. Yeah. Nobody came to say how are you about your sister. It was not talked about. So you just it, held inside. And I was just there and I remember today when I think about it, yeah. I think I was depressed. Yeah. I remember sitting just there and staring and being very scared and not talking to anybody for days. I used to go and eat and I used to do this, but because I didn't there was, play. There was no adult there anymore. Like there the, was, you didn't have your sister and there was no adult that was no. properly taking care of you. And I didn't talk about it, didn't talk about it for years. Until I wrote that book, I never talked about it. My children didn't. I didn't even, I, sometimes I used to say I had a sister, but I never I, it was. It's. It's still. It's a hard memory. And every time, you know, I already had children. Every. I always, whenever I thought of her, I had this lump Choke, in my throat, yeah. like now. But but, and once I wrote it all down, I stopped crying about it. Yeah, it was amazing. But it, I stopped crying about it. But I still think, my goodness, she she was such a wonderful little person. She was a very beautiful child and very happy. And she sang. We both sang very nicely. And she was so nice and so sweet. And 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 she suffered. If she, you know, if she just died, I think I would. I wouldn't, but the way she died, it was just, it was just so awfully painful. Shocking. Yeah. There was yes. a boy in the ghetto. Uh, and when I went to visit, when, there was a time we were allowed to go visiting uh, from the camp, walking, yes. because there were no transport. So I went and I went to visit my aunt and... And my aunt, of course, wasn't home because everybody was working. They were hardly during the day. The ghetto was empty because everybody was in factories. And this boy came out, and he came out, and he said, "It was so nice, you know. He was the only one." And he said, "I heard that Munya died already." And this already was such a poignant sort of yes. Yeah, so I said, yeah, that was it. The children talked like that, you know. We we so were. So you tried to comfort you. Yes, and 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 the children knew about death and knew about hunger and they knew about everything they that was going on. They had to grow up on. so fast. Yes, and yet there were children in in yes. in, in spirit. There. Yes, like it was so nice of him. I remember when he said that, but it was very more. It was moving for me, but when he said already, it was a very, a very telling word. And then one of the worst times came when the train came for Auschwitz. What happened then? When we all got on a train, there was this click, this loud click of the doors you know, metal on metal closing. And that was it. It was dark. And all there was was a tiny window somewhere up on top of the of one of the walls. Mm. There was no air. There was nothing. And we just sat there. And I remember my aunt, who was such an optimist, or, or at least she was trying to give us courage yeah. and hope. 
And I remember her daughter had temperature. She didn't feel so good. And she says, oh, well, you know, you'll be all right. Once we get there, they wouldn't make us work straight away the first day. And and you'll be all right, you know. Isn't it amazing, though, that during the, the worst of worst times, people can still have that courage and hope and, and try and pass that on to other people? Yes, but you have to. If you don't have that, you you don't have anything. You, you just give up. Did, in a minute, think, you don't have hope. Do you think having that hope is what got you through? Yes. My soul, my, my mind, my, my being mm. was... Um, still intact. I never thought that I won't. It's amazing, but when I think about it, I never thought that I was going that I won't see the end of the war. I always said when the, it was always when the war ends, and I was thinking, always thinking of food when the war ends. What are we going to eat, and what we're going to eat, and what we're going to eat? That was more or less the in Auschwitz. That was the topic. Nothing else. We were on the train and my aunt was trying to keep us happy you know, to happy, understand. Yeah, you know, and eventually it stopped. And when we got off the train, it was hell. Then that was when we got to hell, into hell. And the minute you were out of the wagon, there was immediately put you in a line and you had to start walking. And we were walking and we didn't know where we were yet. And suddenly they said... Uh, Women's, uh, women uh, separate and men separate, to separate. And my cousin, who was a, the a boy. boy, Carmela's brother, he was taken. Was he by himself? He was by himself. How old was he? He was two years older than me, so he would have been, I was at the time I was 14, that was 1944. Yeah, so he was 16. See, he was 16, He was, yes. And he was all by himself. And uh, and so the the four of us were just beside ourselves. We didn't know what we didn't know what was happening, and yeah. then we were still walking, and we walked and we walked and we walked, and suddenly we got to this place. We we stopped in a line, and there was this this huge, enormous man. He he looked enormous. He was. He was tall and wide, and he had this this SS officer's hat and and boots and breeches inside with a real German and a buck and a belt. When we got near it, we saw there was the buckle had a, a, a death head, a skeleton yes. head on it, and and he was just standing there with his with one 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 hand on his hip. And with the other one, he was moving the other wrist and he was going left, right, left, right. And he was selecting people that way. Did you and understand what the left no, and what the right No, we didn't know what, because we were just watching from far. And that was, at the time we didn't know, but that was the man called Mengele. And he was doing ex- a medical experiment. He was actually a doctor. Would yeah, you believe? shocking experiment. Would you believe he was doing? Yes, and he was he was looking for for twins. If they were a twin, he already yeah. got you separately. And my aunt, I was in the middle because my aunt somehow must have felt that things were pretty awful. Uh, we were all right. It it, it was confusion. And I was in the middle, 
And I was next to Inca, and Inca was next to her mother, and Carmela was next to me. And suddenly, they were all wor- worried that he he'll take me because I was very short, you know, um, and and very you know I didn't look my age, and so they were worried. And my aunt sort of looks at me, and suddenly he says, left to my aunt. And she just, she looked very, very confused, and she stopped. She didn't move when he said to. And once again, he just screamed, and he says, left. And then she went, and she was sort of, you could see. And then she was, I think the resignation was just sort of, and she went, and there was a group of other women on the other side, because we were the woman. And and then he he told us to move, and the next people were just behind us. So, and my aunt was just looking at us, we looking at her, and that was that. And then never saw her again. What would you think about when you're in the camp? First of all, you thought about food, and you saw and 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 about that you wouldn't get hurt, that they wouldn't hit you. That was you know survival. That you you just didn't do. The best thing at camp was to be invisible. But you would daydream quite a bit. But then I I did. That was when when we were sitting outside. Sometimes outside also yes. sitting one. And I was daydreaming. I was daydreaming all the time when I could. It was probably the only, I suppose, one time where being in the present is not a thing that you want. So no. being in the future or the past is where. The beauty actually lies. What what would yes. you think about? Well, I was I was actually going home always in my head. Yeah, I was going. I was thinking. Oh, so I know. I knew my father was dead, and I knew you know everybody was most uncles and aunts and yes. everybody. But I pretended they were all alive, and yeah. I pretended that even my mother was alive, and I pretended to be buried in my house where my mother still you know. Lived. And that's why I remember it all, because I, I went through it, over it and over it. I, that's where I went. And I went to school and I saw my teacher and, <sighs> and I went through the classes that we were. You, you had know. happiness there. And I, yes, I tried to not to be there. I couldn't. And then whenever... Happiness was in your mind. Yes, yes, mm. yes. I, I needed it. I, yeah. I didn't know what else to do because I, there, was no, there was no future in what I was doing. I don't know if I understood that. That was my instinct. I I did need to do it. I need to run away from there. And I didn't know how most probably this was the only way I knew how. In your mind. And so my memories kept me going. Was there kindness in the camps? Well, with each other. Yes, and what kind of kindness with did you each find? Other, we, we looked at, if, it is true that if you were on your own, it didn't last very long, it was very scary. And But when you were together, you sort of knew somebody somebody yeah. cared. So, so yes, we sat there and, and, uh, and we knew some people from the ghetto, so mm. sometimes we managed very quietly to sort of say something. And the, the, the going thing was, hold on. That's what it, that hold was. Hold on. Hold on. Oh. In Polish, yes, it was, but you had to whisper it because you couldn't, and you couldn't move your your um, your mouth. 
But you would but, whisper. But you would whisper cry. when you passed. If you passed somebody, you, you, if you whispered, and, and you say, hold on, you know, that was the... So it was something that you... It's it, so it was, beautiful. You had to do something. You you did have to... You, you, you went... You see, it was... In a way, I was just thinking always... It was them, and I, I don't know if everybody felt like I do. I don't know. Yes. Because we didn't talk about how we felt. We knew what was going on, so there was no need to talk yes. about it. But I I always thought, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything, you know. I didn't think like that, but I thought, they're the bad ones. They yes. are the bad ones, and I'm different. And I had hope. I was, I was always thinking when they were... When the when war, the war ends. ends, and I was that was the kindness also. When I was with my friend, another two people from the ghetto that we knew, she, they, I, they always kept me in the middle because I was the short one, and uh, they always kept me in the middle. And when there was a selection, sometimes you had to go around a field or something. They walked so they wouldn't notice me, sort yes. of in the middle, but mo- mainly. You had to stand there. In Auschwitz, it was naked, stark, naked. You had to stand in fives and the girls that, that were already much more. I was, a, I was lucky. I wasn't developed at all. Yes. I was a child looking. And that's why I, they always worried about me because yes. I, Looked a I wasn't younger. supposed to be there in the yes. first place. I, I suppose in, yes. in, in the way that the Germans saw it. So one day there was a selection and... A, f- a few times we saw it, and there was a woman that we called the Angel of Death, and her name was Greise. She was a young woman. She was sadist. She was walking around with this big white gloves. And when I saw her at that selection, and she, there was also another man with her, another SS man. And I thought, oh, this is the end of my, my life. That I was thinking then. I thought, no, I don't think I'll make that because it was... Up. And there was a, a line behind us and a line in front of us. When it came to my line, he looked and each one of us. And when he came to me in the middle, he, his head went down because I was short. And he said to me, how old are you? And I decided there before that, and I said it to the girls, I'm going to say I'm 17. How old? I was 13. And if you were to not live, how old did you need to be for them to? I needed to be 12, yes. not two. But I was 14, but I, I you looked look so at, young. I, I, I didn't, I looked a few years younger than I was. I was very young looking. Yeah. And, and I was, as I said, all the women were, you know, sort of developed and all this, and I wasn't. I was just flat. And and he says, how old are you? And I said, I said, nothing to lose. I said, 17. She would have hit me to death. But he just looked at me for a second, and then he took his hand and he, he, he just... Touch my chin. And he said, but child, you are not 17. So I said, no, I'm not. 
But uh, but I said, I'm 14, and I was like very shy, you know. And I said, I'm 14, but I I, I want to stay with my with my sisters. And he says, Who are your sisters? And I pointed them out. And he says, All right, so go go back to the block. And he sent me back into the barrack. And he was a ni- must have been a nice man. Oh, this was the miracle. April 16th, 1945 was the day that you were liberated. Yes. And that was... That was another miracle. Another miracle. There's a beautiful poem that you actually wrote in your book that I would love yes. you to read. It's called Liberation. Exultant, I'm running blindly through unfamiliar streets. My jailers have fled. I'm a bird uncaged, rejoicing in my freedom. My spirit is soaring. My wings unfold. I'm assailed by overwhelming emotions. I am. Euphoria lifts me off the ground. I float, I leap, I fly. My soul is singing a song long lost in sadness and sorrow, bursts from the depths of my being. Yet not a sound comes forth. Ecstatic I run faster and faster to the rhythm of my soundless singing. Frenzied I run, propelled towards the welcome sound of approaching tanks with hearts pounding and heads spinning. What exhilaration, what joy there will be tomorrow. It was April 16, 1945. Bless the Americans. We were liberated. We were free. I was 15 years old. Wow. How did you feel? I felt fantastic. I, I I think, I don't even know where my strengths come to the right. I felt so elated, but it was it was just so wonderful that you you felt there was nobody watching you. You you could do you could go out you could go in you could go to the toilet you could you could do things that you you couldn't that you you weren't able to for years. It was just wonderful, just, just wonderful. Yes. When you look back at your life now, why do you think you survived when so many perished? That was my question and still is, actually. That is my question. I really don't know. I think either it was was destiny and it was meant to be, and it was miracles. And that's all. I mean, I have no answers. I don't know. I don't know whether there was anybody. Also, my cousin said to me, she said, uh, whenever you passed uh, a German or a German passed you, an angel held his eyes shut. And that's why you survived. That's what she's telling me. It was miracles. And I think I was destined some, somehow. But I remember that was the first thought after liberation when I calmed down a bit and, uh, and uh, 
suddenly realize what's going to happen next and stuff. And then I was thinking, why did I survive? When everybody's dead, what, what you know, it's, it's, it's very confronting, I think, to suddenly be a survivor of such a ma- of of of, of a, such a massacre in 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 the millions, and you, you then you you have to somehow believe in things, and you have to think that there must have been a good reason why I survived. Yes. Mu- I must have. I don't know. I I must. Something is expected of me. I I don't know what, but there must be. Otherwise, what sense does it make? Of course. How do you look at life now? Having gone through the Holocaust, uh, oh, I appreciate it. I find I find that every day is is a miracle. That every day is a gift. Do you appreciate things more now? Very much, always, always, and everything, everything. If I can sleep in in the morning, and mm. I don't wake up at four o'clock, and I, you know, in my warm bed and a hot shower and. Little things, oh, a piece of soap. Yes. When I think about, when I think about it, I still do. You know, I still am very lucky, and 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 also that I came to Australia. That was another lucky thing. I mean, that was a miracle the way because you couldn't go anywhere, and we put our names on many many lists of countries that didn't take people, and Australia somehow came good, and and we we got here, and I think Australia was very good to us. And I do appreciate every little bit of it. I do, really, do you harbour hatred still for the people that hurt you? No. I never I never hated them then. I didn't like them. I just didn't like them and I didn't think they were nice and, and, and right. I thought they were some monsters. But I was separate from them somehow, like I told you before. I was nicer than them. I sort of felt... I'm not like that. And they're, they're different. They're not nice. So I had nothing to do. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with them or anything. But no, um, I, I mean, I can't, I can't forgive them. I can't forget what they did. But I do not hate people. I don't hate them. Don't no, waste my amazing. time on it. No. Because, you know, when someone harbors so much hatred, they're just hurting themselves. And the fact that you went through the most shocking atrocities and you can sit here with me now and say that you yeah. do not hate these people is like letting yourself free. I don't hate I yeah. don't hate them. Did you pray in the camps and do you pray now? Yes. When I was in Auschwitz, I must say, I, I tried to make a bargain with him. And I remember I, I, I did that and I said, when, when they took my auntie away, I, was, I said, please let her come back. Please let her come back. I'll be such, it's so good and I'll, I'll do all, you know, the things that, you know, I'll be good. But, uh, well, it didn't happen. But that's another story. Yes. But, yes, I still, I still, I, 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 I rather talk to him. I don't officially... Do prayers. No, but you speak to... Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I ask him for things sometimes. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sort of very familiar, uh, on familiar terms, so to speak. What are, what are you most grateful for? I am most grateful for 
for my life now that I came to Australia, that I had a wonderful husband, I fell in love, and we've, we both were enough. He was also a Holocaust survivor. He also had a horrendous time, and he lost his people. And um, and we we had have a wonder we have a wonderful family, and that we could have a family that yes. we still continue. What is a life of greatness to you? I would say someone that saved somebody's life would be a, a life of greatness to me. And and somebody that did something nice for other people. My aunt was great. That was a life of greatness. So, so she, you know, she was selfless. Yes, that's what I think. Guta Goldstein, thank you so much. Your words have touched thousands of people and you coming here today to tell this story, I am so unbelievably grateful for. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for having me and thank you for giving me the opportunity to to speak and to, to tell my story. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.